joining again. Um, we, I, I don't know if you all, you probably all didn't get a chance to see the dailies, but it's, uh, it's good for to have them back from India. Um, and then the Cordovas as well. I just want to extend a special welcome to my, my friend Drew Strayer and his wife Millie Ellen and family. Drew serves at Manor Church. Um, they are actually getting ready to go to um, church plant, but really just invest in different communities or in a community in the Pacific Northwest, which if you know, any of my Pacific Northwest is one of the hardest places um, to, to preach and live the gospel. So if you remember, please keep them in your prayer. Um, they have a great big heart. They love Jesus and they love people. So please be praying for them as well. Um, we're going to be continuing our series through the life of David. I thought this would be a good place to kind of reflect on the journey we've been so far. Um, I think I'm going to have to come back to David next year because I started reading ahead and, and getting to his family, and I realized that oh, that's a mess. You know, like if you think your family's a mess, just read about David. It's just, it'll make you feel better about yourself. Um, but so far in this browsing through his journey, we've talked about David's anointing, about how, you know, in this world, sometimes we, we like the bigger, better, faster. We like the most impressive outward appearances. But God looks at the heart, the people who truly, truly love him. We talked about David and Goliath and reminded ourselves that with God of the universe on our side, we're never really the underdog. And furthermore, God prepares us for our battles so that we can slay any and every Goliath. Then we looked about David and Jonathan, we talked about friendship, about how our friendships even, if given to God, can be used for the glory of God, and how David and Jonathan really points to God's friendship for us. Then we talked about a little bit of dancing as we looked at David and the ark and, and looked about this God who's always worthy of our worship. You know, if there's one way you want to summarize David's life is that he always gets to this point where he realizes that no matter what, God is worthy of our worship. Then last week we began this epic of David and Bathsheba, and we talked about sin. Sin not just being missing the mark or, or falling short, but sin being taking intentional steps in the wrong direction. This week we'll kind of wrap up that epic, and, and we're going to introduce a new character. It's going to be David and Jonathan, and we're going to talk about grace and consequences. Let's pray together. Father and our God, we thank you that you're indeed the God who sees. That though our world may not see, though even sometimes we may not see, you see us. So God, I thank you that you look at the heart and you bless the heart. God, I thank you so much that you prepare us for each and every battle. I thank you so much that you have friendship with us because of your covenant love. God, I thank you that you, the God who's worthy of all our worship, even when we sin and fall short, there's grace. Even when there's consequences, there's mercy. Even when we fall short, Lord, you always pick us back up again. Thank you for your love for us. In your holy and precious name, amen. We're going to jump back into 2 Samuel 12. Uh, our scripture reading for the morning was actually the first seven verses. So we're going to pick it up midway through verse 7. So 2 Samuel 12, 7, we're going to be in the middle here. As soon as I find my paper. There it is. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. 
Before your eyes, before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to, to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us. And when we spoke to him, how can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Then David, yeah, David asked, is the child dead? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Well, this scene is pretty fast. This scene is pretty interesting, actually, because we start off telling this little parable that Nathan comes. Now, we have to remember one of the things is when we left last week, we said David is breathing a sigh of relief. Remember the story last week? David wakes up in the, the middle of the night. He gawks at Bathsheba. He objectifies her. He's the one in power the whole time. He asks who she is. and like, well, you should know who she is. He ignores that. He sends for her. He lies with her. He takes her. He lies with her. And then he sends for her husband, hoping to cover it up. Sends for her husband and says, hey, um, you should, you know, take your break. Go back and, and, and sleep with your wife. And she denies, or he denies it. Uriah is faithful to God. He's faithful to his brothers in the battle. He's faithful to the kingdom more than David the king is, you know. So David tries a second play and says, like, well, we'll just get him real drunk. You know, we'll get him real drunk. And then, we'll, of course, he'll go back. Uriah again says no and sleeps with the servants again. This isn't enough. David in power writes a letter summoning Uriah to death. Joab gets this letter and realizes, oh, this is going to look real bad if I put one of my best warriors out there. So he makes up a new plan, and he schemes it that he sacrificed even more than Uriah. So you have David living in sin, and more and more people keep dying. So after that, Uriah, um, Uriah dies, and Joab goes to a messenger, and he says, listen, I need you to tell David exactly what happened, but this is what you need to tell him, and make sure you end with Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger and Joab both know something about David. David has a horrible habit of killing people who give him bad news, right? You think you don't like bad news, David doesn't like it, he'll kill you, right? So this messenger knows all this, and he goes before David, and he's like, you know what? We're going to add on to Joab's story a little bit, embellish it a little bit, and he does, you know? And at the end of the story, he goes, you know, Uriah the Hittite is dead, and that's all David needed. And then at the end of this, you see that all these people are dying. David, a man who had before mourned and cried when his enemies had died, 
When these faithful servants to him and to Israel and to God die, he shows no pity. In fact, he's so proud and he feels so smug at getting away with it, he says, you know, comfort Joab and tell him, this is just what happens in war. You know, this is just what happens, people die. And so that's where David is. That's where chapter 11 ends, but in chapter 12, this is what we know. Uriah is dead, Bathsheba is now David's wife, and the child has been born. Now, I did okay in science, you'll tell by this next statement, you know. It takes more than a couple months to have a baby, so there's a good chance that this has been nine months since this has happened, maybe even a year. So between, you know, when we're reading the scripture, like, oh, 11 and 12, it happened next. This could have been at least up to a year that David has been living in sin, but thinking he got away with it, feeling real good about himself. But we know that God sees. Chapter 11 ended with, you know, not only is our God not mocked, but God sees and he's not pleased. Our sister Rashida, who was in the first service last week, I was at the door and she walked to me. She's like, you know, I don't even need uh, reality TV, Pastor Hank. I'm just going to get popcorn and, and just listen to David and read his story, you know? <laughs> and I thought about it. I was like, that's some of the best commentary on David I've heard in a while. It's true. It really is, like, I don't know if it's better. I don't know if that's the right word I want to use. But it's better than our reality television, you know? So David's living this reality television life, but I think in chapter 12, there's a shift here that God sends David his reality check. So whereas in the previous chapter, David is in power, he gawks about Sheba, he objectifies her, he takes her, um, he sends for her husband, he sends him off to his death, he tells Joab what to do, he sends the messenger back to Joab. Now when we begin chapter 12, God is in power. And God is not only in power, God sends his prophet Nathan to deliver this message to David that yes, there's going to be grace for you if you ask for forgiveness, but with your sin comes consequences. Nathan is the prophet of grace and truth wrapped in love. One of the things I think we, we do at the service to Nathan is we reduce him to this passage. But Nathan was perfectly suited to be, you know, some commentators are like, this is what we learned from Nathan, how to confront, you know? But I think they miss it because they reduce Nathan to this prophet. So who was this Nathan? Well, first of all, he was a prophet, which in that culture meant he was the voice of God. So if David was the chosen and favored son of God, the prophet was still the voice of God. Furthermore, Nathan was the prophet who God used to answer David's request. David um, had wanted, after all these success, and God had elevated him, David recognized, again, sensitive, you know, man after God's own heart, recognized that our, our God is still in a tent in, in a, a camp. You know, we need to build a temple. And I think part of that was because of David's dedication and love to God. But again, I remind you that in that ancient Near Eastern culture, you know, they're very, you know, uncivilized and not as smart as we are, you know. They're all about bigger and better, you know. Like, we're never like that, just them, you know. They, they like shiny things. They think the bigger you are, the more powerful and the more blessed you are. I know we're not like that, but just them because they're uncivilized, right? So one of the things these uncivilized people believed was the bigger your temple, the bigger your God. You know, one of my favorite people groups had a, a temple that was seven football fields long. And I always said that people who showed up for temple, you know they were dedicated. Because for me, about the 50-yard line of the first field, I would have been good. You know, I'd be like, you know what? I can just talk to my God. We're good. You have a good day. I don't got six and a half more in me, right? So David wanted to build this temple. And God says, you know what, David? You're a warrior. You know, you established the kingdom. I want someone else to build my temple. And Nathan is the one who gives what we believe is called the Davidic covenant, where he comes before and said, David, God answers your prayer, but you are not to build the temple. You know, you're going to have a son who builds a temple, and he's going to live, and he's going to be on your throne. You don't have to worry about that. But even greater than that, there's going to be another son who's coming, David. 
There's going to be another son who's coming who's going to be the Messiah, my son, and we know him as Jesus Christ. David gets this promise from Nathan. So Nathan is not just a confronter. Nathan is the prophet and the voice of God. The second thing about Nathan that's real, real good is that he's a historian. Now, I know we're very, again, again, we're very sophisticated and knowledgeable more than them, you know? In their culture, they value stuff like truth, you know? We struggle with that today, right? Historians write it in their own image, but back then they actually valued truth, right? It's new for us. We got to work on that. But Nathan was a historian, and we know that he is, some people consider him the chronicler, so he might have been the one who wrote Chronicles, but we know for a fact that he wrote the history of David's life and even Solomon's reign. So Nathan is not only a prophet, but he values truth. The third thing about Nathan that's real, real important is he's a counselor. He's also one of David's most trusted advisors. In fact, David, at the end of his life, when he's old and he's about to die, David had many sons. You know, we talked about last week how the crack in his armor started when he turned his eyes off of God and kept marrying other people or marrying and marrying more and more women. Um, David had many sons, and one of his sons was a guy by the name of Adonijah. Adonijah was ready to usurp his father's throne. His father was old and weak, and he felt he should be king. And it's actually Nathan who rallies with Bathsheba to say, um, David, remember God promised it was Solomon? And it's actually Nathan and Bathsheba who ensure that Solomon gets the throne. So who is Nathan? He's not just a confronter. He's a prophet who's the voice of God. He's the historian who cares about truth. He's the counselor that David trusts and respects. So when Nathan enters into this throne room, you can see that David is excited, you know? It's almost like if you have a friend who every time they see you give you $100, like, you'd be real excited to see that person too. The last time David sees Nathan, God says, listen, your son will reign and it's going to be amazing. More than that, when the Messiah of the world comes, it's going to be from your line." And back in December, if you were with us, when we looked at the Advent story, we said not only that David had many sons, but both Mary and Joseph could trace the line through David through two different sons. That's how many kids he had, right? God, God made sure he got it right, I guess, right? So both Mary and, and Joseph had sons of David in their line. So David is excited to see Nathan. But Nathan, when he comes, you know, I think part of what we also need to realize is Nathan is brilliant. Remember, we've said that David doesn't really like getting bad news. What does he do to people who get bad news? He kills them, right? So Nathan shows up, and Nathan does something that's very brilliant here. He starts off, and he wants to tell not just a parable, but a story. I think Nathan does this because he knows something about the human condition. We love stories. You know, I'm a millennial. I think we're in the post-postmodern. They change it every 10 years. I think that's where we are right now. But I love when I read about it and people are like, yeah, you know what? Millennials really love story. You know, they just love story as if this is something new, as if people in all of society, in all of history, just decided that in 1982 when the millennials came, like now we love story. But if you think about it, your favorite song is probably a story that you like. Your favorite movie is probably a story that you like. Your favorite books, for those of you who still read, is probably a story or a series of stories that you like. We as people love story. And Nathan knows that if I use this story, I can not only disarm David's defenses, but I can instruct him. I can force David from up on the high horse to stop looking down on this person and start looking up at God and realizing, oh my gosh, it's me. So Nathan tells the story. And we read it in our congregational um, um, scripture reading. We said, there was a rich man. Right? There was a rich man who had many possessions, and he had many lambs, and he treated them like possessions. But then there was a poor man who only had one, one ewe lamb, and, and he treated it more like a daughter. You know, it slept with him, it lived with him. It was very, very close to him. 
A traveler shows up, and when the traveler shows up, the, the, the rich man decides, you know, I, I don't want to use my, one of my many possessions. I'm going to take from this little guy the one little sheep that he has, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to sacrifice it and give it to the traveler. David, who's disarmed now, and is oh, he's king, right? He's kingly, and he's listening to this story. And the scripture says he burns with anger. He burns with anger in him. He says, you know what, man? This guy is worthy of death. And then he goes, but before that, you know what he needs to do? He needs to pay back four times what he took from the guy. And then Nathan utters three words that are probably some of the four boldest, or four words, right? They're probably four of the boldest words in all of Scripture, one of the boldest sentences in all of Scripture. You have to take yourself back to that scene and realize Nathan is speaking to David the king. Nathan is speaking to the greatest warrior Israel has ever known. Nathan is speaking to the man after God's own heart. Nathan is speaking to the, the one who they still worship to this day with the star of David. Nathan is speaking to the all-powerful king. He's in this throne room, and he stands boldly before him, and he says, no, 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 David, you are the man. Now, for us in our culture, if somebody says you're the man, you feel good about yourself. Like, yeah, you're right. Now, I'm a woman, but I feel like the man, so I'll take it, right? But when Nathan says you are the man, it breaks something in David. And I think when, when people who lovingly point us in the right way, it breaks something in us because then we start to realize we finally stop trying to hide our sin and we see ourselves and we see the ugliness that we're living in. And Nathan then switches not just to, to his message, but God's perfect message to David. And when you hear this, you realize something about our sin. You realize that sin is not just falling short. Sin is not just breaking God's law. Sin is not just me taking wrong steps in the wrong direction. Sin breaks our God's heart. Think about the beginning of our passage that we read this morning. God is broken that his son would do this to him. God says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And hear this, if, it was, if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. God is heartbroken. And the first thing we need to learn about sin is that when we sin, we break our God's heart. God is heartbroken. He said, David, I chose you, not just out of all your brothers, but out of all of Israel. I chose you. I anointed you. I delivered you, not just from Saul, but all your enemies. And if you've been reading with us through the story of David, the man had lots of enemies. Saul himself tried to kill him five times one time, if that makes sense. And God says, I delivered you from all your enemies. I gave you this palace. Not only is your palace grand, I'm still in a tent, but I gave you the palace. I, you know, I told you you should only have one wife and you have all these wives. And, and David, I, I still was willing to, to say, you know what? He's still trying to seek after me. And then this is what I love. And it reminds me about our God and how big and how amazing he is. He says, David, if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. The thing about our sin is it lies to us. The thing about our sin is it promises, what, like, it promises us checks that it can't cash. It promises us things that it can't ever deliver on. It promises us happiness, but we get emptiness. It promises us pleasure, but we get pain. And God says, everything I've given you, David, the palace, the kingdom, the children, the women even, David, everything I've given you, I have given you. I would have given you more if you just asked but you ran from me. And then God says, you, David, you not only sinned, but you despised my law. 
You did evil in my eyes. You killed Uriah. Not only did you kill him, you killed him by the blade of the enemies. You took his wife to be yours. Not only did you commit adultery with her, but after seven days of mourning, you took her into your house to try to cover up your sin. David, I love you, but you have broken my heart. And I think if we want to start to understand what sin does to God, go back to this passage and feel the pain of God. Yes, God is all-powerful, but it's also possible that we can hurt the Almighty God by falling apart from him, by despising his law, by doing evil in his eyes. And we're reminded even last week, you know, yes, David's sin is heinous, but Jesus teaches us that there's no such thing as victimless crimes. Because Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said that it's bad to do adultery, but if you ever lust after anyone, you've committed adultery in your heart. And God cares about the heart, doesn't he? God said, Jesus said, you know, you, you've committed, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder, do not kill, that's bad, bad, bad. But if you've ever hated a brother or sister, if you ever looked down upon a brother or sister, if you ever thought you were better than them and use your power and privilege and position for, for your uplift and their downlift, if you've ever cursed a brother or sister, that's just like murdering them. So we're kind of like David, aren't we? And, and, and then Nathan continues, and he continues, and then he, he says, you know, because of your great sin, David, there's going to be these consequences. Now, remember, at the end of the, the chapter 11, after David sends the messenger back to Joab, he says, you know, tell Joab, you know, I just comfort him and let him know, like, this is just what happens in war. People die. And now God flips the tables on David. And he says, David, the sword will never depart from your house. From this day forward, the sword will never depart from your house. And from that day forward, David's family turns even to, to even more of a mess. Second thing that God said is a consequence is that David had, had, had sent for Bathsheba in the cloak of night. David had, had forced himself upon Bathsheba in secret. And now God said, you know, David, there's this private sin that you did. Someone close to you will do something very public to you. And what happened is that David's own son, Absalom, when he said he was going to be king, he walked probably the same porch that David walked when he was gawking at Bathsheba. He set up a tent. He went into his father's harem and slept with his father's wives in public. The second thing that happened here is the third thing that happened is God says to, through Nathan that your son will die. This brings a little bit of an existential crisis for us, you know, because we're sitting there reading. We're like, well, David sinned. Like, I mean, why does this poor kid have to die? Now, the first thing when you have these existential crises I've learned to do is always start with Jesus. And I think where we start with Jesus on this is simply this. We as Christians, we as people who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, we're on the other side of the cross. And what I mean by that is Jesus has already died for our sins. We're blessed this morning because everything we've done that's worthy of death, Jesus has died for. David lives in a time and place before Jesus has come. And back then, the law was still the king of the land, and the law required death. So the first thing we got to come back to is to recognize and to hold on to, praise God for Jesus. Praise God for Jesus. Because of Jesus, I, who am worthy of death, have now been freed, have now been given life. So that's the first thing when you think about, why does this kid have to die? You know, I get the law equals death. Well, you're blessed this morning because you got to call upon the name of Jesus. David didn't get to call upon the name of Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second one I think is real important is to, to recognize that the law was stated to help people live right. 
And David had intentionally despised the law. David had intentionally, last week we said when we sin, we forget about God. We make ourselves gods and we're living for us. But here's the thing that's interesting to me. I think most parents will tell you the hardest thing they can imagine is burying a child. I think most parents will tell you whether or not they're David in the story. I think most people will tell you. You know, if you've ever loved someone who's younger than you that you've invested in, right? So that should be all of us. If it's not all of us, you've got to get to work. If you've ever loved anyone who's younger than you invested in them, all of us will say, at any point, I'd rather sacrifice me than them. And the worst punishment they can imagine is what? Someone else paying for their crimes. And I think we underestimate the weight and the power of what David had to deal with the rest of his life, knowing that because of his sin, his kingdom would be very, very different. His house would be a raging civil war and that this child who was innocent would have to die. The rest of his life, David had to live with that. But here's the other thing that I think we missed. If we go back to that parable, you know, I told this story in the, the, the first service. And, and when I first read this parable as a kid, I was actually really confused because I was just like, that's interesting that people would treat, you know, a lamb like a family member. Um, then I met a friend in, in seminary who has a brother who also worked for Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he worked with, uh, it was a small village off the coast, of, well, off one of the coasts, I guess, of Papua New Guinea. And in this village, and they were translating, I think it was John, when, when the Baptist says, you know, behold the Lamb of God. And they were killing it. They were doing a great job just beasting it, just translating. And then they got the lamb, and they're like, ooh, this is going to be a problem. You know, like, they have no concept of what lamb is. What's funny is, we in America think we have a concept of lamb is, but our concept is very different than what they had in the Middle East. These people don't even have what we have. So they sat back and they said, you know, what are we supposed to do? We can't really translate lamb because they don't know what it is. If we draw it, it's just going to be worse. They're not going to get an idea of what it is. And one person in the group says, you know what we need to do? We need to take a step back. Trust that God is already here. Trust that God is already moving. Trust that God is going to help us through this problem, right? They took a step back and they learned something that was interesting. They learned that in this village, you know, pigs were very exalted. Kind of like the guy in the story, Pigs were family members. People raised them. People fed them. People had them play with the kids. Pigs were family members. And, you know, at first they're like, well, that's interesting, you know? But then they realized that every time travelers would come into town, the whole town would gather, and the chiefs would all sit in the line, and the people would have to argue who had the best pig. And they would argue, they'd say, this is why my pig is good, and blah, blah, blah. I don't even know how you argue your best pig, but that's what they do. <laughs> But afterwards, they would choose whoever was the best pig. And then they would sacrifice that pig. And it was to, to say that, you know, this pig that's a family member, we're going to sacrifice it to welcome you, the stranger, into our home as part of our family. And they took a step back and they said, oh, my gosh. With all the Jewish sensibilities, Jewish people don't even like pork, but I think we got to translate as Jesus is the pig of God. Because they recognize that Jesus was God's son. Jesus was the one who walked with God, but Jesus is the one who was sacrificed so that they can be welcomed in. And they said, Jesus is the pig of God. And they said when they translated that, they would do readings every time, every time they did a chapter. And when they got to this chapter, the whole tribe lined up. And first it was the chiefs, then the chiefs' wives, then the nobles, and the nobles' wives, and all the way back. And when they got to that part, they were super nervous because they're just like, this doesn't even make sense to us. Jesus is the pig of God. But when they read, Jesus is the pig of God, the one chief raised their hand and said, wait, what? You mean that God gave up his son so that I can be his family? And then they started weeping. 
weeping, and it turned to tears of joy, and it just kept going, 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 and it was this wave of emotion. This lamb that's in our parable is not just a picture of Uriah because he loved the lamb. It's a picture of something that's personal, something that's mine. And remember in the story what David said, this man shall die, and before he dies, he should pay back what? Four times. If you look at the rest of the David epic, guess how many sons of David dies before he does? Or actually, in his life, four different sons die. The first was Ammon, who was killed by his brother Absalom. Then Absalom was killed by the general Joab. Then Adonijah was killed by Solomon in Solomon consolidating his power to become king. And then you have this son. So there's a lot of people who believe that it's not so much that God killed his son as much as God let David's own judgment come down upon him. Because David says, that man needs to pay back four times. And God says, you know what, David? That's what's going to happen. And David lost his four sons. So you're saying, Hank, this is a lot of consequences. Where's the grace? The grace is found in this simple word. When David hears all of this and he realizes he's the man in sin, he says simply, I have sinned against the Lord. And you find out something about David here that's fascinating and beautiful at the same time. David recognizes sin, that yes, it was sin against Bathsheba. Yes, it was sin against Uriah. Yes, it was even sin against Israel, you can argue, for sending people to war and not being there. But more than all of that, our sins are sins against God. And God gives him forgiveness. In one sentence, God forgives. It shows that God's forgiveness is instant. God's forgiveness is free and freeing. God's forgiveness gives us life. But there's still going to be these consequences. In the rest of our passage, I think there's things that David learned that's helpful to us. But I also think there's stuff that we can learn as well outside of the David realm. The first one I think is important for us to realize and hold on to is that, yes, God forgives our sins, but our sins have consequences. You know, I have a five-year-old. If my five-year-old stood on our island and dropped a, a plate on the ground and it shattered, it would be foolish of me to be like, oh, my gosh, the plate shattered. But I think most of us as Christians, that's how we deal with sin. We, yeah, yeah, it's God forgives me, but then we're shocked by the consequences of our actions. We're shocked that when we hurt people, that there's this follow-up that comes from that. We're shocked that when we go out and don't follow God and aren't faithful to God, that yes, we're forgiven, but we're shocked about the consequences. The first thing you can learn from David is don't be shocked by the consequences. The consequences don't say your sin are forgiven. The consequences just say you've sinned, and this is what you have to now live with. There's always consequences for our sin. God forgives our sins, but your sins have consequences. The second one I think we learned from David is that we can pray to God, but we can't manipulate God. And I'm not going to say David's trying to manipulate God, but I think David tried hard to pray for his son. He, he stopped eating. He put on the ashes. He laid on the floor. He wouldn't hear from anybody. He pled to the Lord. Now, this is a little bit interesting for me, but um, when I was about 12 years old, I was hit by a cop car. And when I was hit, actually, there's a stop sign there now in southwest Philly. And people tell you Hank's never done anything in the world. I created a stop sign. There's one there for me now, you know? But I remember that night, you know, I think from the impact of the, the cop hitting me and, 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 and um, just, yeah, being 12, I was paralyzed in the shock. That's the word I was looking for. I was paralyzed from the neck down. I remember that night, you know, I was praying to God. And this is, I, this is actually the first time I read through the whole David epic. You know, I had nothing else to do. I could have moved. You know, so I was like, 62 chapters, bring it on, right? 
And I remember reading through this David story, trying to sort through all this, and I just started bargaining with God. I don't even know what I said to him or what deals I made to him, but people came and prayed over me. The next morning I was walking, I felt good. And most people would be like, oh, it's a miracle. You know how I was? I was 12. I was just like, man, I really wish I didn't make all those promises. <laughs> you know, like, like, I really wish I did David where I was just like, I have sinned or something and I'm covered, right? But I think what it reminds me of, though, is that David is praying and he's being honest, but we need to realize that when we pray to God, he doesn't do what we want. It's okay because he's God and we're not. I think we need to realize and hold on to the simple fact that you can pray to God, you can plead to God, you can ask God and he hears you, but you cannot manipulate God. And that's something we have to hold on to as Christians. The third thing I think David learns in this story is that our sins might be great, but they only show how small we are and how big God is. There was 10 commandments. David lusted and coveted. David committed adultery. David committed murder. These sins are great and they're big. But in God's forgiveness, David not only felt small, but he felt how big God's love is. He felt how big God's covenant, unfailing, faithful love is. Our sins might be big, but they're just going to show you how small you are. And it's okay how small you are because your God is big. Amen? And I said this earlier, and I'll make up the word again. He loves you bigly, and that's okay. Last thing I think David learned, though, is that when our actions hurt people, it is our job, it is our work to go back and reconcile with those people. Think about what happened in chapter 11 of Bathsheba and what happened in chapter 12 of Bathsheba. In chapter 11, David sends for her. David brings her in the cloak of night. David, you know, forces himself upon her. She's pregnant. He tries, he gets her husband killed, and then he forces her and she's married to him. But think about the difference in chapter 12. David comforts her. David goes to her and he makes love to her. David goes from this power person to this reconciliation with Bathsheba. And I think it's a reminder to us that it's not just enough to ask God for forgiveness, but if we've hurt people, it is our job to go back and comfort them. It's our job. I'm not saying make love to everybody you hurt. That's just not what I'm saying. You laugh, but I know there's two people who are thinking it. I'm not going to say which two. But the thing is, if we've hurt people, it's our job to be reconcilers, and David does that. The other lessons for us, though, I think are a little bit more harsh, maybe, but I think it's necessary. The first one, Luke says it like this, quoting Jesus. He says, for there is nothing hidden that will, be, that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Our secrets will be forever revealed. Now, some of us are really good at hiding secrets, and we might have to wait till the day of judgment when Jesus rolls out the scroll and says, Hank, when you were 12, you did this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you for Jesus. Some of us might make it to that. But because sin have consequences, we might not always be able to hide our secrets. And they might come out. So I'm saying that not to scare you. Yes, I am. I'm saying that to scare you. But I'm saying that more than scaring you. I'm saying that to say that we have to be intentional about living circumspectly and always honoring God in how we live. Being a Christian, choosing to follow Jesus, is not about your public life, right? David was really good on the public life and terrible on the private life. God cares about both. Our God doesn't believe there's Christian and secular. Our God doesn't believe you're, you're public and you're private. God believes you're you. And wherever you are, he wants you to honor him. Amen. The secrets will come out. The second one, and we've talked about this before in this sermon, is sin is firm, first and foremost a sin against God. Yes, David hurt Bathsheba. Yes, David killed Uriah. Yes, David let down his men. But David says, I have sinned against the Lord. I think that's something we have to get back to realizing as Christians. Because sometimes we think about our sins, we think about the people we've hurt, and that's good. 
We think about the world around us and the impact on it, and that's good. But we have to get back to remember that when we sin, we sin against the holy God. When we sin, we stop making God first and we make ourselves first. And the other thing we have to realize when it comes to God is we have to get better and not looking at the world around us or what is good, but trusting God what he says is good. We have to stop looking to ourselves and thinking what I think is good and trusting God what he says is good. If sin is first and foremost against God, we have to know what God says, we have to know who God is, and we have to do what God has asked us to do. The third one is simply this. Sin hurts not only you, it hurts not only the people around you, but it breaks your God's heart. I think that's something we don't think about enough. God is merciful. God is all-powerful. We like the sovereign God who's powerful in everything. But God is also vulnerable because here's the thing about love. When you love, you choose to make yourself vulnerable to somebody. And God has chosen to make himself vulnerable to you. And when you sin against him, you break his heart. But I think the best part about this whole passage to me is this last part. David proves his heart. This entire story David has worked and thought with, he's worked with every other body part except his heart, really, right? <laughs> Everything else has been good except his heart. But I think this is where David's heart shines. When you realize in this sordid affair, in this darkness, in this terribleness, where does God's love for, like, why is he so special? David's special because he realizes that God is always worthy of worship. When David gets this, this consequence that his son's going to die, he pled, he fasted, he cried. The child died. But then after the child died, and this is inspiring to me because I don't know if I would be there. After the child died, David gets up. He washes himself. He puts on his lotions, and he goes straight to the temple to praise God. And I'm not saying if God's done, you know, if something bad's happened to you in your life, you're not allowed to be mad at God. Read the Psalms. David's plenty mad at God. But I am saying it's inspiring to me, and it should be inspiring to you, that David doesn't blame his situation on God. That David doesn't let his situation blind him to the fact that God loves him. David goes through this horrible thing, and yet he says, you know what? My God is so worthy of my worship. And that's inspiring to me because in our culture today, we're very good at worrying about me. Worrying about what I've been through. And I'm not saying what you've been through is not powerful, is not enough, but I'm saying God's always worthy of worship. And if God is only worthy of worship when things are good, then you don't know God and you're not following God. David in this story, this is where his heart really shines through. As he says, you know what? I'm reminded of my own mortality and my kid dying. And David's an artist. He's an artist. And it's beautiful what he says. It's kind of morbid, but it's beautiful. He says, you know what? Why am I supposed to cry? I can't, my son can't come back. One day I'll actually go and be with him. Right? He's reminded of his mortality, but then he goes and he praises the Lord. I think that should be inspiring to all of us, that in spite of our situation, God is worthy of praise. That in spite of what we've been through, God is still good. That in spite of the consequences that we're wading through because of our sin, God still loves us, and he's worthy of our praise. David, think about this, he goes immediately to worship the God who let his son die. God could have saved him, but David so worshipped him who let his son die. David worshiped the God who ignored his prayers. He prayed for seven days. He got down. We don't, we don't even pray this hard anymore, right? He, he didn't change his clothes. I don't advise that. You know, he put on some ashes. He laid on the floor. He didn't eat. For seven days, he prayed with all his heart, and God didn't hear him. But he still praised God. 
And I think it reminds us of David's heart. And where David's heart is is simply this. Trust God no matter what. And you'll see this all the time in the story of David. At the end of the day, David says, you know what? I'm going to rely on God and put myself in his hands. That's where David's heart shines through. It's not because he's not in pain. It's not because these consequences don't exist. It's that he gets to the end of the story and he says, you know what? I'm still going to praise the Lord. And to me, that's inspiring. That's like, you read through this whole story, he's like, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Oh, this is good. And I think that's what God wants from us, that we can be a people who are not just praising him when things are good, because they won't always be good. That we can be a people that are not just dependent on God when the situation is right, dependent on God when everything's going well, that even in our darkest moments, we're looking to him for light. Amen? I'd like to invite Pastor Esty back up in the choir. We're going to end with a song called Take My Hand, Precious Lord. As we sing this song, I want us to be reminded that we have a God who not only graces us, not only forgives us, but a God who loves us. And this morning, there might be some of us who are still living with some of the consequences of the sins we've made or the sins we've done. But even in those consequences, your God is good. Your God is faithful. Your God is true. I'd like to invite up any staff who's in the room as well. We'd love to pray for you. And the intercessors, please come up as well. There's a prayer room. If you need to go spend some time with God, do it in there. We got prayer rails up here for you. Anything you need, please come up. We'd love to pray for you. But as we sing this song, may this song be your prayer to God, that no matter what, I'm going to trust the Lord, that no matter what, I'm going to put my life in his hands, and no matter what, the God who thinks I'm precious is going to take my hand. Let's stand and sing together.